Awesome. I want to welcome everybody here tonight. Who's excited about class? Come on. Yes. Yes, I'm always excited. And, um, and uh, through the Holy Spirit, man, we just pray that we all learn something tonight and he all, he all connects with us. Um, there's nothing like the Bible, y'all. There's nothing like the Word and the revelation of the Word. When that just begins to come together and unfold, to me, it's one of the most exciting things in the whole wild world. So it's awesome. So um, before we begin, I'm just going to go ahead and just, uh, just take a few moments again just to pray. Holy Spirit, we just thank you for your presence. We thank you for your presence, Lord. We thank you for the love in the room right now that we feel. Lord, I just felt immediate shift happen, Lord. I just felt the peace. I just felt just a peace in this room right now. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you've taught us through your word because you said that peace precedes revelation. Peace precedes revelation. And so, Lord, I, I ask now, uh, would you just send the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, would you come and just reveal the Father's heart to us tonight? Reveal Jesus' heart to us. Reveal what you're saying about the raising of David's tabernacle. Our connection to it. What it means for us personally. What it means for this church. Where you're taking things. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would connect in each person's heart here tonight. Only in the way that you can do it. So I just pray, even as words come forth, that they would have weight, that they would have purpose, that it would not go back void, but Lord, that it would, uh, it would produce fruit in the kingdom. And so Lord, we thank you, we honor you, and it's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 So I want to start real quick by doing a review of last week's class. Who made it here for last week's class? All right, come on, just mostly everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight for our, for our class? That's all right, welcome. Come on, so we, that's why I want to do a review, get us back all on the same page. So we are talking about the rebuilding of David's tabernacle. How exciting is that? Who, come on, come on. Who, who can remember, there, there was a prophecy we talked about, right, about David's tabernacle. Who remembers where that's from in the Bible? Amos what? 9-11. And what does that name, Amos 9-11 say? In the last days, I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. So we know that that is a prophetic promise for us today. So what we are doing is unpacking what David's tabernacle was so that we can step into the prophet, prophecy today and see what's happening. So last class... We kind of like, I, I felt laid a, a framework. I was so fired up last week, I couldn't help it. I was burning. But I felt like we just laid a framework. Uh, before we start talking about the infrastructure tonight, we talked about the whole point of restoration. That when we talk about David's tabernacle, what does it mean? It was a movement of restoration, right? And so of that restoration, if you notice back on the slide, if you could put that back up there, were basically uh, four things. Because remember... I just want to go back to this. I felt like it was so strong when the Holy Spirit showed it. You remember we talked about the ark and the tabernacle was at Shiloh under the keep of Eli and his two wicked sons. So when they mishandled the revelation of the Lord, they mishandled the presence as ministers. They, they didn't take that into account. They mishandled it, used it for their own gain. Then the enemies struck Israel, the Philistines, separated the ark from the tent of Moses took it in captivity, and remember, Eli died, the two sons died, baby's mama died, the wife died, 
and the baby was born prematurely, seven months, incubated. Revelation was when we mishandle the revelation of God, it can lead to premature ministries, premature decisions, and things like that in our lives. So we want to be good stewards of it. But the key revelation I felt last week from that was when Inkabod, the word Inkabod is disgrace or the glory has departed from Israel. And so we, we watched the ark, we walked through, and everywhere the ark went from that point until David brought it back, there was death. People were dying if they got around the ark, if they touched the ark, if they looked inside the ark. And why was that? It was because grace had departed the presence. And in other words, God's glory himself had departed the ark. And what's, when the grace is gone, only is left is the law. The law was in the box. The law brings death. Grace brings life. And there was no priests to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Come on. But when David brought it back to Israel... There was all those sacrifices. He was pleading blood forgiveness, and, and it really restored. It, I believe that. It, it, it released a movement of restoration. Four specific areas I put up there was it, he restored the priesthood through this act. Remember, Saul didn't have any regard for the presence of God. All for 70 years, the ark remained. And then the priesthood was in shambles. But when David brought the ark, he, he restored the entire priesthood. So the priesthood was restored, and again, that is a four-picture to Jesus who restores us to the Melchizedek priesthood, where all of us are a kingdom of priests and believers. Come on. So the, I believe the restoration of the priesthood, purity, Eli and his sons had lost the position of holiness. They had lost the position of purity of heart, and David restored that as we walked through that. And then uh, purity, the other one was uh, uh, presence. It became presence-centered. The coming of the ark to Israel was David didn't gather the nation around his, his ability to be king. He gathered the nation around the presence of God. And so everything became present-centered, present-focused, present-led. And uh, so these were just kind of some of the things we reviewed. Uh, unity. The last part of that is Unity. He restored unity in that passage. Why? Because remember when David brought the ark back, it said that he was, <laughs> can't really dance that well, but he was, he was dancing. But Amber's going to Facebook, Instagram. He was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Come on. But in 2 Samuel 6, I didn't hit this last week, but I, I just want to open it up. It said that he, he danced, listen to this, with Women, now remember, women in that society, in that culture, were kind of on the lower tier of society. So not only was he down in the streets dancing with women, but they said they were slave girls. I mean, just think about it, slave girls. He was dancing with slave girls. He even got reprimanded from his wife for doing it. Slave girls. And so what was David doing? David was breaking the cultural barriers. He was transcending Come on, man. He was transcending the race issue, the culture issue, the gender issue, the economic issue, and gathered everyone around the presence because that's what the presence does. Only the presence can break these barriers that we have today. So I believe with everything in my spirit, if the prophecy, like I said, I believe it in the last days, I will restore the fallen tent of David, then that means I believe with everything in me, we're going to see a restoration of the priesthood. That's revival breaking out in the local church. Purity, that is a call back to holiness and the purity of heart. 
and unity. We're going to see a revival of unity, especially among this black-white issue and other, uh, like we have never seen before. And, uh, and, and, of course, I believe God's heart is he wants us to get back to present-centered. You know, e- even in our churches, a lot of times programs and, and stuff like that is good and we need those. But if they take the focus, if they become centered, then we lose the presence. If we lose the presence, then we got to deal with all the junk. But when the presence is there, then God deals with the junk. Come on. Amen. Woo! I like that one better. So that's, uh, that's, just, that's just awesome. So I feel like those, those are areas today. Um, this, this last one, before we dive in for tonight's class, is, uh, is the power, my goodness, of music and dance. Now, now, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Now, ha- let me ask you a question, guys. Have you ever, maybe you come here right on Sunday morning, we, we get pretty wild, right? We can get radical, maybe more than other churches. And um, have you ever noticed it, that when we get cranked up, like, we'll be going and it's like you can feel it. The Lord is moving. God is moving. And we have a group that's kind of always up here in the front. And then we have a group that's kind of just hanging in the back. You know, it's kind of like that. But then if you notice, there's like this joy that comes in. And, and people start dancing. Have you ever noticed that when we actually all dance together, like something it just breaks out? Can, can y'all feel that? It's like a wall that breaks through. Why is that? Why do you think that is? He inhabits the praise of his people. Come on, he's enthroned on those praises. Oneness, it brings a unity, doesn't it? It brings a unity. And I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying that if you're not dancing, you're not spiritual or you're not in line. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that as it moves, when we come together, it really does release a breakthrough and a freedom in the room. Don't you, look, when David, he was the king, man. He was the top authority. So don't you know when he modeled the way, what do you think everybody else was doing? They were dancing, man. Dancing. They They were going crazy. What did that do to the whole environment? Freedom. Freedom. Why? Because when freedom comes, creativity starts flowing. And, and what you were created to do, what God's called you to do, starts to become more, more evident. So this thing about the dance, I mean, it really is something powerful when you think about it. And, uh, you know, when your body moves to the Lord like that, I mean, it, it releases something. I wanted to kind of weave this in here. I felt it this week as I was studying. Uh, a lot of David's tabernacle, we'll get a little bit more into it too as the class goes on, is based on prophetic worship and spontaneous worship. That is, that is kind of when we go off the scale, just kind of we did a little bit tonight, and we just begin to sing to the Lord, or we begin to prophesy to the Lord, just Him and us, and we just get lost in that place, and just really, it really does something. And there's a freedom in that. It's a fear in the sense that you don't know what you can do, what you're capable of doing, because you have to step out of the seat and lose yourself. You have to lose yourself, but not just in worship, in your prayer life. You have to do the same thing. So question, prophetic and spontaneous worship, where do you think it started in America? Now, we know we're talking the Bible here, David's day, they were doing it. But how about in our nation that we live in today? What do you think the origins of prophetic and spontaneous worship 
came from. Philip? Amos 9-11. Yes. September 9-11. I believe it's, I, you're so right, Philip. I actually shared this one time. I believe it's our 911 call. And the old show, I don't know if y'all remember, there used to be a show called Rescue 911 with William Shatner. That's our, that's our lifeline, man. Rebuild the tent, David's tabernacle, God. But, come on. That's it. You're on it. You're on it. i actually been reading a book called Black Fire. It's a study of Pentecostalism and its connection with African spiritualism. And very awesome author, powerful. But let me just, just share this insight from this book that I was reading. Um, actually got a copy here. Uh, she reads about, she's writing about the Zuzu Street Revival, but she brings this context that's amazing. And she's going on to say that, you know, African spiritualism in Africa, they were all conditioned as a culture, as a people, to music. Everything they did evolved around music. It was, it was a source of life. I'll actually read you a quote from her book. It says, while the African cosmology ancestors served as a source of restraint, music to the African people served as a source of release. All of African life, every ritual was infused with music and rhythm, singing and dancing. Africans would sing while they worked, while they prayed. They would sing to give, and they would sing to re receive instruction. Music is essential to the African spiritual reality. Dancing was just as important to them as singing. That's why there's a lot of rhythm. That's something we need, I need. My goodness. Listen to this. Africans danced not only for the social gathering, but they also danced in worship. Whew. They danced before going to war. And then they celebrate victory after the war. They would do it in dance. No one was too young or too old to dance. Not just for the feet and the legs, but every part of the body. The arms, the hand, the shoulders, and the head. Just as the song does, the dance in the community reveals a story. Come on, man. I'm, I'm just getting excited. The dance, it was more than just shaking to the rhythm, but it was telling a story. It was opening a narrative. It was connecting the whole tribe together. Dancing almost like in everything else in the African culture was communal and based through the community. It was the expression of a collective story. It said reverence for ancestors, uh, the music and singing was every part of their lives. And the last part I wanted to read about this was that in slavery days now, so you have that context, so then you have slaves coming into the plantation. In the midst of that, you had like the Great Awakening revival, you had camp meetings, you had revivals in America begin to take place. And so what was happening was, is you had slaves on the plantation who were forbidden to read, forbidden to write. So if they can't read and they can't write, how can they read music? How can they play music? How are they praying? It's all spontaneous. Whew. It's all prophetic. Come on. And there is a song and a sound that is released through that culture. That's what they call the old African spirituals. 
Did you know all the old African spiritual hymnal songs are written on the black keys of the piano? Every African spiritual is written all on the black keys of the piano. Do you know that? Isn't that unbelievable? Every one of them, from like swing low, swing chariots. Every time I feel the spirit. And Miss Addie knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, huh? All of You're singing from your heart. Oh, every Wednesday morning in our intercession, Mama Addie is singing these songs. It is, it is unbelievable. But then there's another, and I'm, I'm kind of segueing here, but this is really good. But then there's another thing um, that they call the most famous white spiritual. You know what the most famous white spiritual is? It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Now, I know some of you are aware, some of you may not be aware, but the author of Amazing Grace was a guy named John Newton. Anybody know what he was famous for besides writing Amazing Grace? He owned a slave ship. Before he met Christ, he was a slave ship owner. Part of his conversion and when he was broken is that God saw that they were people and not property. And he wrote that song from the place of brokenness. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But what a lot of people don't know, I found this out. I, I listened to this minister share it. I could not believe it when I heard it. All the black spirituals are played on the black keys of the piano. Amazing grace was played on the white keys. They said the lyrics were written by John Newton. But the melody, the melody of Amazing Grace was written by a man named Unknown. Do you know why he was unknown? Because history has now proven the sound and the melody of amazing grace came from a West African sorrow chant. So isn't it interesting that still I believe one of the most anointed, powerful worship songs today that has transcended time was written from a white man's lyrics from a redemption on the chant of a black melody from Africa. Come on. Unity. Jesus. It's believed that they were singing it. Mm. Mm. Come on in. And he heard that melody. And the spirit of God hit him. <laughs> mm. Mm. I'm sorry, I'm just to be obedient. Every African-American in this room, would you stand up? If you're African-American in this room right now, just stand up for a moment. Just stand up for a moment. Whew. I want to say on behalf of every white man, I repent and I am sorry for not receiving your form of worship and not receiving that sound and that song from many, many years ago. Because we thought it was too emotional. Or we thought it didn't have a place in the church. I repent of that right now. I repent of that on behalf of every white brother and sister. And we receive your sound. And we receive your song. In the name of Jesus. Somebody give the Lord a, a praise. Hallelujah. Jesus. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Woo. I believe we're in the midst of the rebuilding of David's tabernacle. This is it, y'all. This it's not coming. It's happening now. Woo. 
Jesus. Jesus, make us one, Lord. Make us one, Father. You prayed it, John 17, make us one. Make us one, Lord. We're reading tonight, God, that there was a story where the people of God were one. All the tribes came around the ark. All the people gathered around the presence. Lord, in our day, make us one. Make us one, God. Make us one. Make us one, Lord. Thank you, Father. Make us one. Thank you, Lord. Whoo, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Yes, ma'am. My goodness. It's happening right now. My Lord. Man, I don't know where I'm at here now. (laughs) Tabernacle. Amen? That's good, isn't it? Woo! Man. Why you pull yourself together. Okay. Um, (laughs) I can read. when I was reading in one of my old Christian music history books, and um, it was talking about the impulsiveness of worship that David introduced and how it affects Mm. your health. And so I'll just read that real quick while we transition. Um, But the function of music and worship changed in the thousand years or so from the time when David danced in triumph before the Ark of the Covenant to the time of Christ in response to changes in society. The early descriptions are often of music being created impulsively as a response to events such as David's triumphs and enabling the release of emotions Mm. amongst the people willing to express them openly. So there's something powerful there when we engage with willingness and worship to express ourselves emotionally, openly. Such scenes of abandon are recalled nowadays in the practices of a number of Christian communities around the world. And above all, in the music of an Ethiopian Orthodox church, which maintains remarkable links with the distant past. Music therapists today are quite certain that under the right conditions, such open expression of feeling is beneficial and healthy. Wow. Come on. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? So dance to your health. I mean, dance to Jesus, but dance to your health. And I, and I, and I feel. Emotionally, like you, something wow. literally releases off of you. Wow. And why do you think the enemy wow. is trying to weigh you down? Mm. Why do you think he's trying to shut you up and oppress you? You got to throw that mess off of you. Come on. And release it. The, uh, you know, and that's where I was, I think, going with this whole thing about the dance, how important that is, because it is a release. It releases. It says, God is enthroned on the praises of his people. And I believe part of that praises is the expression of our physical bodies in the place of worship. And so I believe he's enthroned in that. When it's coming from the heart. Amen. And look at all those benefits. That's, that's amazing. That's exactly how they made it through. That's how they stayed joyful in the midst of so much turmoil. I'm going to go ahead and just jump right into that because we've not really publicly announced this yet, but it's pretty solid where we can because it ties right in. 
So God really spoke to me earlier this year about doing a conference here at Global River at the end of the year. And so we're going to have a conference at the end of the year here in December. And we're working together with Abner Suarez. He's, you know, been here a lot to speak. But the Lord told us strategically to bring in two brothers. One is Will Ford and Matt Lockett. Will Ford is an African-American man, minister that ran with a guy named Dutch Sheets for many years. Matt Lockett leads the Justice House of Prayer up in D.C. Both of those guys ran together for many, many years with Lou Engel Dutch, the calls doing revival, calling young people to fasting and prayer. Will's a professor at Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas. So the Lord spoke to me very clearly about bringing them here, and there's a reason why. And um, because I've heard their story, he's black and Matt is white, but this is what's phenomenal. About three or four years ago, one of them did their family genealogy, and it turned out that Matt, the white guy, his family owned Will's family on a slave plantation in Louisiana. Will, from his family, has an old cast iron kettle pot passed down five generations from his great-great-great-grandfather on the plantation with the story that says that they would have to huddle in it in the slave quarters at night to pray so the master wouldn't hear them praying because they would get scolded in trouble. But he said in their family it was prayed and prophesied that one day there would be a massive wave of healing over this issue of white and black, slave and free. And so now these two brothers share it together. And it's just an amazing, amazing thing. So this is something that is, I feel, not just we're talking about, it's good. The Lord is really on this. And so we felt that we wanted to do it here because there is still another layer, layer of reconciliation and healing that God wants to do. So Abner got the word of the Lord. He said, I feel like we're supposed to call it Healing the Land Conference. So we're going to have a conference called Healing the Land. Come on. You're all invited. But uh, so anyway, so that's, that's, a, that's a real powerful thing. Okay, let's go to the next slide. All right, I want to get in a little bit more into the word. And I want to talk about the tabernacle of Moses, tabernacle of David a little bit more. All right, go to First Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1. Stay on it, it's too long. But First um, Chronicles 16, 1. Okay, remember last week we tried to walk through the progression of the tabernacle of Moses. It started in the desert in the days of Exodus. It went from the desert to a place called Shiloh. There you go. And went from Shiloh to a place called Nob. Yes, Nob where the priests were killed, and then it went from Nob, you won't believe this, guess where it went after Nob, to a place called Gibeon. Who's here Sunday? Oh, don't you love it how the Lord ties it all in? It went to the home of the Gibeonites. Wow. The tent of Moses went to the Gibeonites. Anyway, I'll get excited. So, we don't know at what point it did. The Bible's not clear if Saul did it or if David did it, but we do know that it went to Gibeon. I want to read this a uh, uh, few verses here in 16, just to get us all on page. Verse 1, it says, They brought the ark and set it inside the tent. Somebody say the tent. That David pitched for it. They presented burnt offerings, fellowship offerings before God. After David finished the offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people of the Lord. Look at that. He fed them. 
He gave them a loaf of bread. This is a whole nation, by the way. This is tens and thousands of people. He gave them a loaf of bread, cake of dates, cake of raisins. Here's verse 4. It's very interesting. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to make petition, give thanks, and to praise the Lord. Do you see that? He appointed some and left them at the ark. Now go to verse 39. You go to the same chapter. You go to verse 39. Here's the other branch. Then David left Zadok, the priest, the high priest, and his fellow priests before the tabernacle of the Lord, which is the tent of meeting or the tent of Moses, at the high place where? Give in. My goodness. To present burnt offerings in the altar, on the Lord's altar, burnt offerings regularly, morning and evening, in accordance with everything that was written in the law and the word of God. So when David brought the ark, here's the picture. They brought the ark and they put it in a tent. But there was nothing in that tent except one thing, which was the ark. Gibeon was a mile away from where David put the ark. David put the ark of the tent at a place called Mount Zion. It has layers of revelation on it. Mount Zion was actually a hill right outside the old city of David. That's where the ark and the tent set, David's tabernacle. About less, just less than a mile away was Gibeon. That's how close it was, Gibeon. Gibeon is where the tent of Moses set. And what was all at the tent of Moses? Remember? The altar of incense, the brazen altar, the burnt altar. There was the menorah, the seven lampstand, the showbread of presence. Everything basically except the ark. Why, why would that be? The tent of Moses over in Gibeon, the tent of David over on Mount Zion. And as you can see there, they left it going. They ran them independent of one another all the time. What a picture. So, if you remember the law, right? Now, people are still under the law, so they got to bring animal sacrifices when they're sinning. So, when David sets this tent up, they, initially they sacrificed as they put the ark in, but after that day when he sends them all home, the sacrifices don't go to the ark anymore. They all go back to the tent at Moses, just like the law at Gibeon. So, the people were bringing their sacrifices. Come on, this was the blood atonement for sin, purification, for that to keep going because people need forgiveness of sins, need to work out our differences, need to be right with the Lord. So all of that is still going on, but at David's tent, it's a little different. There was a different type of sacrifice going on. It wasn't an animal sacrifice, but it was a worship and intercession sacrifice. Come on. So in the natural, you have incense of smoke rising, and in the spirit, you have the praises and the shouts and the words and the expressions of the people of God going at the same time. This is revolutionary. This was amazing. And I, I don't know about you, but for a long time, I never knew that about the Bible, about this story. I didn't know that how they function like that together. And they ran together for 33 years. They kept it like that. They kept it separate. 33 years. Now, why at Gibeon? You know, I'm going to ask that question. So, a couple people here Sunday, we talked about the Gibeonites. Quiz you. Quiz you. Quiz why time. <laughs> what was Joshua's mistake with the Gibeonites? What's that? 
trusted his senses. He did not inquire of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord right there. That's the word. He, he relied on his senses, and he did not inquire of the Lord. He took counsel from his senses, but not the Lord. So I, I'm just praying. Again, this is just kind of Mike's download from the Lord as I was processing it, because I'm asking the Lord, why would you lead, why, at all places, why set it up at Gibeon? And remember, what's, what's David doing? This whole process is about restoration. Oh, my goodness. So where Joshua failed to inquire of the Lord, the tent of Moses becomes a place where you go seek God for wisdom, revelation, and discernment. How do you know? Because he had a son named Solomon. And in 1 Kings... Listen, I, I got to show this to you. I didn't put this thing in here, deviate. In 1 Kings, and in, in, in when Solomon, after David has son Solomon, he grows up. He's getting ready to take the kingdom. Look, look at this. I'm getting there, baby. I'm getting there. In 1 Kings, chapter 3, verse 3, look at what it says. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statue of his father David, except that he offered the sacrifices and the burnt offerings burnt incense in the high places. That was a no-no. He would later pay for that. But in verse 4, here it is. The king went to where? Gibeon. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. Wow. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, ask whatever you want me to give you. Sit down, verse 9. So Solomon says, so give your servant a discerning heart. My goodness. Discernment. Give me a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong and good and evil. Discernment has a four-definition breakdown. It represents understanding, number one, the ability to consider. You know how important that is? Okay. The, the importance to consider you know, you got to consider a decision before you make it, right? Count the costs. Consider, perceive how you perceive things, very important, and interpret how you interpret situations, how you interpret people, how you interpret responses. All of that is wrapped up into that Hebrew word discernment. And so we know Solomon becomes the wisest man in the world. At that point, God gives him that answer. But what I want us to see, it was at Gibeon. He didn't go to David's tabernacle. He didn't go amongst the worship and the praise. He went to the old tent. He went to where the old folk were, to where the wisdom was, to where the law of the Lord was, the grace. And, the, and, and he went, he made an appeal, had a dream. And so David, come on, led by the Lord, honored the past, my God, he honored the past by setting up the tabernacle of Moses and creating an environment where people can inquire of the Lord and not make the mistake that Joshua made. Oh. My goodness. Woo. <laughs> I just think that's incredible. That's incredible, isn't it? Keep going. I'm going to take my jacket off. Come on. Man. Okay, I'm like preaching no, mode. that's good. Anyways, so ten of, ten, of, 10 of Moses. But again, what does that represent you and I? Remember, they had wisdom. Wisdom. Discernment. I believe it represents, I believe it represents kind of an outlook of a, the older generation. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
and you need the old generation. They said, this revival ain't going to be all young people in skinny jeans. Huh? Ain't going to be all young people in skinny jeans. They're a big part of it. But it ain't going to be all young people in skinny jeans, is it? Thank God. Thank you, Lord. We got to have some wisdom in the house. Come on, y'all. He's preparing you. He's getting you ready. We got to have that wisdom that y'all been having all these years. We got to have it. Come on, man. And so then you have the zeal at the tent of David where there's unending worship and prayer going on day and night, night and day. When you combine those two realities, are you talking about power? I believe that's where we're going. I believe this, this restoration is that type of revival. He's not only going to give us the fire of the Holy Spirit and the zeal of Jesus, but he's going to give us the wisdom of the Father. Come on, man. Jesus. Okay, Ten of David. Ten of David, located Mount Zion. We hit that. Just as David stationed Zadok as the high priest for the Ten of Moses, so David stationed Asaph as the chief musicianary. His job was to create sounds and rhythms and music to the Lord. Come on, what a job that is. All day, every day. Doesn't that sound fun? And he was a chief musician at David's tent. Now remember, there was nothing else around the ark but the ark and the tent, so that meant there was no veil. No veil. What did that mean? That mean for a brief moment in time, Everyone in there had access to the presence of God. Whew. Even in the Old Testament, anyone can go in and could get access to the presence of God. David made his presence accessible to every person, tribe, tongue, and nation. I want you to hear that. He made it accessible to the alien, to the orphan, to the widow, to the young, the old, the rich, and the poor. Anybody could peek into the tent and see the two cherubim over the mercy seat. And encounter God. Think of the stories were told from them by their parents of Moses in the Red Sea. And just, wow, not, not a high priest once a year. My goodness. Not a high priest once a year, but anybody could go at, at one time. So I, that's, just, that's amazing. Could it be that God is going to restore that back in the earth again? That the presence of God is going to become so tangible and so real that it's going to literally invade the public school arena. It's going to invade town hall meetings, government meetings. We need that, don't we? It's going to invade politics and rewrite laws in history. I, I mean, I believe in that kind of stuff. I believe that's we're on the brink of that. Woo, Jesus. Bring it, Lord. And so both tents ran together for 24-7. Because remember it said, minister as it the law required. Well, there was a morning and a night sacrifice. Day and night, night and day. Want to get a little bit more into the 24-7 part of it. All right. Now let's talk a little bit more. Let's go a little bit deeper. Okay. You ready? Doing good? Doing good. Let's go a little bit more into the infrastructure of David's tent. So hit that next one. Pull Amber in here. That was just a picture of the two tents. You had the tent of Moses there and then kind of the tent of David, what that would have looked like. And you go to the next one. Okay. So what, what did David... This revelation of worship, where did he get it? How did he get it? I want to really encourage, again, to read this book if you get it. It's called Enthroned by a guy named David Fritch. Amazing revelation on David's tabernacle and what we're kind of some of the stuff we're sharing tonight. Really good information about, about the 24-7 and the model that David created for 
heaven to touch earth in that, in that time. So reading David's book, I never saw this before, and he brought it out wonderfully. And he thinks and believes that David received a revelation of worship, just as Moses received the revelation of the priesthood, right? Aaron, Levitical priesthood. David received a revelation of worship that transcended worship, that changed everything. And he connects it to Revelation chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go there real quick. Revelation chapter 4. You want to walk us through on some of this, Sam? Revelation 4 is throne room worship. It's that encounter where John goes into heaven and he sees an incredible sight. He sees heaven's worship team. Yeah, he, yeah, that's really good. Um, and we just kind of want to talk about what was the purpose? What's the purpose of throne room worship? Um, why do we need it? Why is it important? For me, like, I, this is just personal. I know some of us are really good at congregational songs and singing corporately and pulling everyone together. But, man, I just want to go to the throne room. <laughs> like, all of that stuff is good, but I want to hang out in the throne room. But um, so Revelation 4 talks about the worship in heaven. So we're just going to read through that. Yeah. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here mm. and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, such as each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was an ox. The third was a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. So, you want me to keep reading? I think that's good. Keep yeah, reading. I think that's good too. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the purpose of throne room worship. The first thing that throne room worship does is it shifts our perspective. You can see in verse um, 1, there was an invitation to John to come up higher. Mm. And sh he's going to show him, um, it, show him what, get the heavenly perspective on things that must happen mm. in the earth. Wow. So for me personally, how I just incorporate this in my personal life, you know, ever, you have a tough time going through a hard season. You ever, you feel like the enemy's attacking and you're like, man, I cannot make sense of this. Like, what is happening? What's happening? I can't figure this out. Lord, what's happening? That throne room worship gives you the perspective of heaven. Mm. It allows you to see things in the spirit realm. It says, and instantly 
I was in the spirit. Mm. It's not something you can do with your intellectual. You got to abandon yourself. You can't do it with your natural mind. And that's why it's hard for some people to go there. Because you truly got to lose yourself. You got to lose it. So it gives us the perspective of heaven. It gets us in the spirit. Mm -hmm. Hello. Mm -hmm. Gets us out of the flesh. Thank you, Lord. Outside of our emotions. Outside of our offenses. Outside of our, I'm hurt. He wounded me. And it gets us in the spirit and allows us to see from the perspective of heaven that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the, the powers of darkness and principality. So if you truly want to look at someone with the, the, the kingdom through the eyes of God, you got to go to the throne room. <laughs> you can't do it any other way. So throne room worship can't happen with an intellectual mind. We have to fully rely on the breath of God. Not only does it shift our perspective about the earthly realm, but it reveals God's nature and character. That's what I love about when he says he saw the sevenfold spirit of God. Mm. That's all. That's who that's who he is. That's his nature. That's his character. That's 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 him. (laughs) And so if you want to meet him, you want to know what he's like. You want to know his character. You want to know his nature. You got to go to the throne room. I just want to hang out in the throne room. Okay, in Revelation 4.3, we see his beauty. He describes his beauty around the throne. You get to see the beauty of who God is. So throne room worship also creates an open heaven for others to experience him. This is probably my number one thing when I'm in corporate worship. A lot of t- I go to the throne room because I want to meet them, but I also want all of y'all to meet them. And so it creates an open heaven for you to encounter God. So just imagine if when you come in here on a Sunday morning, and when we get in that focus of not consumer, come on, worship team, lead me. But no, I'm going to partner with you and go there. Come on. We allow the whole entire room to encounter God. Thank you, Lord. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that good? It's not about me. It's not about I. Man, I want you to, man, I've been to the throne room, and it's incredible. I want you to see it, too. So let's go. You know what I'm saying? That You carry that burden for the entire room. So when y'all see me in the corner going crazy, y'all know why. Get crazy with me. (laughs) And I love this, too. Um. If we go down further into verse 8, it says each of these living, it talks about the four living creatures that all had eyes around them. And Michael will explain that more about the prophetic. Um, it says each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night. There's that 24-hour mm. worship. Come on. They kept saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. So whenever, verse 9, whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the 24 elders fall down and worship. The 24 elders fell down and worshiped after the living creatures acknowledged the holiness of God. 
So the four living creatures worshiping and glimpsing the holiness and the goodness of God, it caused a response to the elders to worship him. And so that's what I love about prophetic worship. I get to get a glimpse, and I express his holiness, and it, it gets caught. And there's a response. You can't help but respond and worship. I just want to jump in here for a second. If you notice, take note of this, what she was saying, it jumped out to me. The living creatures are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is a corporate. Do you notice that? That's corporate. That's a corporate setting and surrounding. But when they do it, then the 24 elders respond. Well, look at their worship song. It's different, isn't it? Why is it different? I want you to tell me why is it different from the first one, from Holy, Holy, Holy. What do you notice that is different about that stanza when the elders say what they say? Anybody want to take a stab? If It's okay. It's what jumped out to me. You ready? It's the first word. You. It's personal. It's no longer corporate. It's personal. The elders ain't looking at the living creatures or anybody else. And they say, you. And that's what Amber's saying. The corporate, that corporate came in the whole room so that you can begin to personalize it back to the Father. That's the picture of it. And that's the power of prophetic worship. Come on. It's not about being lazy. Some people think, oh, it's just because you don't want to plan a song list. No, it's because I just want to encounter him. But the power of prophetic allows you to personally encounter him. And then look what happens in chapter 5. Scrolls are released. When worship in the divine order comes forth, scrolls from heaven, messages, divine wisdom, strategies, the knowledge of God, the release of the word comes out of heaven when that type of worship goes forth. Scroll. It's good, baby. Eat it. I will. <laughs> can, I, can I jump in a little go, bit more? Go, I, th- I think I just want to weave a few other things in about this. Um, notice, right, the rainbow. I felt the rainbow, many, of course, implications around the throne. Guys, you know, everybody's seen a rainbow, right? It's only half. Right, but in this, it's full circle. There's another half of that rainbow. It's another half of that rainbow. You know when that other half is connected? Hmm. When all of us come together as one. Because I believe it represents every tribe, tongue, and nation. The coat of many colors. Whew. And we all come together. It completes his dream. And his, his desire, it makes a full circle. Woo. So I want you to know that a full circle, rainbow. And then there was 24 elders. Now, many people, scholars, believe this is a representation of what? The 12 tribes, the Old Testament, and the 12 disciples of the New Testament, right? Which is the government of heaven, which another representation. Dave writes that uh, this is the highest human authority. This is where the authority that God gives man is delegated at the highest level. It represents these 24 elders. And then you had the four living creatures, right? And uh, those four living creatures, I believe, also are prophetic 
expressions of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit himself. Remember the lion, the eagle, the ox, the man. When we talked about that in the Ten of Moses, the representation of the four Gospels. Jesus the lion, Jesus the ox, Jesus the man, you know, Jesus. So it's, it's, a, it's a, I believe, a beautiful representation of how the anointing, the expressions of the prophetic anointing surround and are gathered around Jesus and then the delegated human authority which the anointing empowers us to carry out that authority, right? It empower, it's just a perfect picture of how it's just multiplied. But all of it is gathered and centered around Jesus. Come on, isn't that awesome? Yeah, it's all about ministering to the Lord. Like that's what the tabernacle is about, is ministering to him. Some of my best breakthrough moments have been in that very, very, very place, man. And just, just focusing on the Lord. The challenge is unhooking the busyness and the activity. Unhooking the religious duty. I have to read my Bible because I've not read it in a long time. It's unhooking the trailer from that and just being with him. Mm-hmm. And just saying, how are you doing? How, are you do- how do you feel today, God? Like, what's on your heart? I love you. Mm-hmm. And, and getting lost in that place, that's where things just begin to happen. So I believe this is the revelation that David caught. He caught this revelation. And what did he do? He patterned it in Jerusalem around the tent and the ark. First Chronicles, and we're going to, we'll, we'll begin to end the plane or land the plane here. First Chronicles. Remember which one to go to. 16, I believe. First Chronicles is 16. May have the wrong one. First Chronicles 16. Yes. Excuse me. First Chronicles 25. Go to 25, verse 6. All right. First Chronicles 25, verse 6. A lot of people don't read through Chronicles because it's all this genealogy. Oh, there's nuggets in that if you've got to read through it. So this is, this is how David now mobilizes and arranges. 24-7 infrastructure of day and night worship and prayer. So how do you know David's tabernacle was 24-7? Here it is right here. David together with the commanders of the army set apart, listen to this, the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jadothan for the ministry of prophesying. Come on, say prophesying. prophesying. Like you about to prophesy, say prophesying. 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 Ministry. This is before Acts 2, by the way. This is before the pouring of the Holy Spirit. This is in the old old days. The ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and my personal favorite, the cymbals. Because that's the percussion. And you know me, I like the drums. That's why I'll be telling Mark to crank up the war beat so we get this thing cranked up. But you see it there. Harps, lyres, and cymbals. Stringed instruments, drums, percussion, but the prophesying back to the Lord himself with these instruments. So what are you saying? I'm saying these guys are the chief musicians. There's three of them. Well, guess who's the fourth? David. How many living creatures are there around the throne? So now here's four chief musicians who all have the ability to prophesy. These are prophetic, prophesying musicians, and they are stationed now through Levitical order. David puts them in there. So they accompany. Now skip down, verse 6. All the men were under the supervision of their fathers for the music 
of the temple of the Lord. See, this would later house the temple after the temple was built. With cymbals, lyres, and harps for the ministry of the house of God. Asaph, Jadathan, and Heman were under the supervision of the king. I have time. Here's a real quick insight. Asaph was one of the chief musicians. His name in Hebrew, because I believe every one of their names carry a weight, a prophetic revelation. Because we said the four living creatures represent that prophetic anointing of Jesus. These men also carry a prophetic anointing in their name. So Asaph in Hebrew literally means faithful. Come on. Faithful. Faithfulness. Faithful. The second one, Jadothan. Or excuse me, He-Man. Let me go to He-Man. He-Man, his name in Hebrew, well, let me back up. He's actually, get this, the grandson of the prophet Samuel. The grandson, I get it, of the prophet Samuel. His name I'm sorry, I had it wrong. He-Man is faithful. This guy's faithful. The prophet's grandson, Samuel the prophet's grandson, He-Man. Asaph, who I just said, his Hebrew name was Gatherer, one who gathers. So Asaph was one who gathers. He-Man was one who was faithful. Samuel the prophet's grandson, who actually, by the way, becomes David's personal seer. Come on, to see in the spiritual realm. And then you had Jadathan, and his Hebrew name means thanks or thanksgiving. My goodness. So when you put all of this synergy together, and then David, of course, in Hebrew means be loved. Come on. Woo! So when you put the revelation of the love of God with the faithfulness of God, with the gathering anointing of God, and you put all that together, it's a powerful expression of heaven on earth. But here's the key, thanksgiving. David went on to fund these guys. In that last verse, uh, in chapter 25, you see how it lists all these numbers, and then it has 12 next to it? It says verse 31, and the 24th, the 24th. So as you read through that list, what is it? That's 24 worship teams that were set apart with 12 members in each team. 24 worship teams, 12 members each team. Why? To take a rotation in the 24-hour day period. Whew. Here's the kicker. <laughs> My God. Guess what their job was to sing and prophesy to the Lord? He said it another He said to give him thanks for his love endures forever. Listen, you can read this in there. We won't go there. David, what made him a profound leader is he recognized the calling and the anointing on these men to prophesy in music. And you know what he did? He blocked out every other distraction, every other administrative role in the tent, any other thing that would distract them from their actual calling, harnessed them and said, I'm going to fund your salary, and the only thing that you're going to do is give thanks to God. Because when you thank him, it creates an environment where he is central. He is enthroned. And you ain't worrying about all this other stuff. David Fritch says he spent the equivalent of $30 million a month to employ thousands of people in worship 
to the king. How much? 30 million. On today's budget, because it wasn't just a 288. In a month. That's one month salary. A million dollars a day. The total was <laughs> 4,000. It's in verse, it's in chapter 23. I just read it. David said, of these 24,000 are to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 will be officials and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, and the 4,000 are to praise the Lord. So there's 4,288 people to praise the Lord, day and night, night and day, around the throne, bringing heaven to earth. My God, we ain't never seen anything like that. But it's coming. He said, I'm going to rebuild yeah, the fallen tent of David. <laughs> Come on, Lord. <laughs> I, I, I want us to catch that here as we close. I just think about that. What extraordinary vision and guts. How about his, how about his council? Here's George. How about the board and that board meeting? <laughs> David's laying out the financials. I want to put a million dollars salary to people who are just going to give thanks to God and not do this other stuff. And you know what happened? God made Israel the most mightiest nation in the earth. And for 40 years, their kingdom ruled and reigned and was the superpower in the world. There's something there, y'all. I believe God wants to build his house like that right here. I, I believe with everything in my spirit and all of this preemptive work of restoration of the forgiveness issue, the reconciliation, the healing, the, all this is all coming together so that his presence can dwell on that type of an arena. See, all of this has to get cleared out first before his presence can dwell in a place. You hear what I'm saying? Listen, when Noah sent the dove out, it couldn't yet land on the earth because the waters had not yet receded. The time of purification had not reached its fullness even when Jesus came out of the baptism of the Jordan River. The dove had to land on clean shoulders, the water coming off his shoulders. The Holy Spirit needs a clean place to land. And I think the, the release of this message is so timely because God is clearing out a lot of the old things and he's wanting to bring together, my goodness, the old, the honoring of the past, but to merge it and to fuse it with the now presence throne room worship where messages from heaven are released in the spirit of God. My God is running rampant. Stand up with me, please. My God. I just feel like praying. Come on, just grab somebody's hand right now. Just begin to pray. God, we ask you in Jesus' name. Lord, it said in your word that you would rebuild the fallen tent of David in the last days. Jesus, we just ask you, build your house. Build your kingdom in us, God. We know you reside in us. We know that we are revival. We know that you're among us. But God, build it in our community. Build it in our environment. Break forth, God, corporate waves of presence of God to saturate our communities and our homes. God, we love you. God, we need you. We thank you. We just thank you today. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, God. Your love endures forever. Your mercy is without limits. Your grace is unending. Lord, you are more than everything we could ever imagine. And we enthrone you, God. We enthrone you in this house. We enthrone you in this city, in this region. We enthrone you. Lord, in Jesus' name, have your way. Have your way, God. Have your way, Lord. Have your way. Come on, just one more minute.
Come on, Lord, consume us, God. Consume us. Evan, Evan Roberts in the Welsh Revival would pray, bend us, oh God. Bend us, Lord. Bend us, Lord. Bend us, oh God. Consume us, Holy Spirit. Consume us, Holy Spirit. Until there's nothing left but you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We thank you. You're worthy, Father. We thank you, Lord. We bless your holy name. Let's give the Lord a shout. Amen. Hallelujah. Woo. That's class two. We'll see you next week for class three. We'll be doing the second part of this infrastructure. Amen. Have a good night.